Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. These days, Jenna Fisher is pretty well set. She plays Pam on The Office. She's one of the most beloved characters on one of the most beloved television programs on television. But it wasn't always that way. Like a lot of actors, she had tough gigs at the beginning. Like her first job when she came to L.A. from St. Louis. It was a training video, and they played it for mental patients (laughs) upon their release from the mental ward. When you got this gig, did you realize at the time that you were performing in a parody of an actor's first gig? (laughs) No. It's Bullseye. This week... Jenna Fisher reveals what all the actors really do at their computers while they're filming The Office. The comedy group Casper Hauser presents the Spanish-language talk show Mundo de Perros. And I talk about some of my favorite Saturday Night Live sketches of all time with the guy who wrote them, Mr. Jack Handy. Yes, he is a real person in real life. The good stuff and just the good stuff this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Let's kick things off with some video game recommendations this week with journalist and comedian Heather Ann Campbell. How you doing, Heather? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm ready to hear about some video games. Let's start with the just absolutely impossibly named Final Fantasy XIII 2. Yes, the sequel to Final Fantasy XIII, which is not a sequel to Final Fantasy XII. Wait, What? There was a sequel to Final Fantasy XII that was not... Not only is the sequel to Final Fantasy XIII not Final Fantasy XIV, the sequel... Final Fantasy XIII was not the sequel to Final Fantasy XII? They are completely unrelated other than a few thematic elements. They are entirely separate games. So in order to keep track of the sequels in the Final Fantasy series, you have to have a sort of Tree of Life type situation. Yes, yes. Imagine uh, more of a, uh, an outline, like a, 1A, 2A, 3A... Three, etc. I, I, I missed two in there. Right. <laughs> anyway, tell me about this game. Well, Final Fantasy Thirteen Two is um, a game about a young girl who's uh, on a mission to save the world. It is a very explorational game. There's, you know, fighting and battles. But for me, getting to go into these fantastic towns and investigate all this architecture that would cost billions of dollars if realized in the real world, that's where Final Fantasy is attractive. So this is sort of like the video game equivalent of a of a plane ticket to Dubai or something like yes, that? Yes, yes, except all the businesses are still operational and they're not going through <laughs> a terrible bankruptcy. But no, it's it's uh, all you have to do is look at a trailer and you immediately get an idea of this very bright, organic meets technology world with skyscrapers that have trees growing out of the sides and everybody rides birds instead of horses. Your next pick is Resident Evil Revelations 3DS. Tell me about it. Well, the 3DS is a system, uh, it's a pretty new system. It came out last March in America, and it is a 3D system that you don't need glasses for. So that's already exciting. Anytime I show it to somebody, they're like, wow, this, this really is 3D. And yeah, it's called the 3DS. But there have been very few classic video games that have come out for the 3DS, with the most recent Super Mario 3DS being a notable example. This game is exciting because it's an actual video game, and it's in 3D, and it's portable. If you remember the old Resident Evil games, it will feel a little nostalgic. And if you have never played them before, it's a little bit like a 
handheld Michael Bay movie? (laughs) See, now that's an interesting thing that you're trying to pitch to me here, because I think that a Michael Bay movie is defined almost exclusively by its scale, right? Well, um, there's, there's... If you hold the screen really close to your face, uh, I guess it will look really big. Uh, there is a, there's actually a lot of scale. Like you fight on aircraft carriers and at sea and on land. Uh, and the 3D effect is really exceptional. Like I'm constantly surprised when I open my 3DS that it works, uh, that I can see in 3D and that I'm not wearing any glasses. Heather Ann Campbell's first pick this week is Final Fantasy XIII 2. Not to be confused with Final Fantasy 13 or Final Fantasy 14, out January 13th on PS3 and Xbox 360. Her second pick is Resident Evil Revelations 3DS, out February 7th on Nintendo 3DS. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. A lot of people think Jack Handy is an imaginary person, but he is completely, totally, fantastically real. He's the author of Deep Thoughts, the short, ridiculous bursts of fake wisdom that were first published in the National Lampoon. When Handy became a writer for Saturday Night Live, Deep Thoughts were turned into popular television spots, like this one. And now, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Contrary to what most people say, the most dangerous animal in the world is not the lion or the tiger or even the elephant. It's a shark riding on an elephant's back, just trampling and eating everything they see. He also wrote some of my all-time favorite SNL sketches, including the I have to admit, somewhat obscure tales of fraud and malfeasance in railroad hiring practices. But before he started writing comedy, Handy was a journalist. The jump happened actually right here uh, in Santa Fe, in a way. I was living um, uh, up on Upper Canyon Road in uh, the upper 70s, and it was like a 150-year-old adobe house that was split in half, and I lived on one side, and Steve Martin, the comedian, lived on the other side. And this was before he was famous. He had uh, he was just starting to do his nightclub act and travel around and decided he wanted to base himself out of Santa Fe. And uh, he'd come over and play his banjo and stuff and got to know him a little bit. And I moved on to another journalism job in uh, San Antonio, working for the paper down there. And uh, one night I turned on... The Tonight Show and saw Steve Martin. <laughs> I would go, hey, my neighbor with an arrow through his head. And next thing you know, he was the hottest thing going. And I sent him some of my humor columns and said, can I write for your act? And he said, yeah. How, what did you think of his act at the time? It was very, uh, it, it was very different from the uh, stand-up comedy that had gone before it. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was not, uh, I, I'm not crazy about satire with a capital s so uh it was uh it was just totally unabashedly silly which was uh it was great i loved it i mean it was just absurdist (laughs) and here's one of canada's most famous landmarks the world's largest umbrella mine 
The mine now produces over 75,000 umbrellas per year, making over one-tenth of the world's total umbrella production. When you were still in, uh, in, in Texas and New Mexico, um, wh- what kind of impact did the, the launch of Saturday Night Live have on you? Oh, it was, it was huge. Yeah, I remember it was, a, it was a cult thing like Steve Martin. And uh, uh, I think I even sent some, uh, sent some humor columns of mine to Saturday Night Live at the time, and I got their forum letter back, which was something like, uh, you can send us some nude photos, but, you know, we don't want this stuff. <laughs> so uh, eventually Steve Martin recommended me to Lorne Michaels. When you started writing for Saturday Night Live, it was when Lorne Michaels had returned to the show after leaving for a while somewhat acrimoniously. Um, and it was kind of the first period of reinvention on the show. Um, or the the first Lorne Michaels-headed period of reinvention on the show. Um, what was it like to be on this show that had this huge cultural cachet built in, but also had been, you know, almost run into the ground and clearly needed to uh, be a new thing? Um, there was there was a lot of discord on the show. Uh, the The cast was sort of put together from people who were already known, like Robert Downey Jr. and Randy Quaid, and... The ratings started out great, uh, but the critics attacked us like crazy. And then the ratings gradually slid all the way down, you know, to where I think there was some question about whether they were going to bring the show back or not. Your writing uh, has such a strong voice. Um, do you feel like you found that voice very early in your career, or, or was it a long process? I, I think it took a process. I mean, you start out just writing what you think is funny and maybe imitative of other people. And then gradually you start realizing what you think is funny sort of fits into a character. Um, my stuff on Saturday night live is usually uh little boy oriented stuff. Then that's sort of what I still write. I mean, about, <laughs> about dinosaurs and cowboys and monsters and things like that. So I ended up writing things like, uh, unfrozen caveman lawyer and Twinsis the cat and just uh, you know anything with dinosaurs and monsters and cowboys was usually mine. We were talking on the email about uh, my favorite Saturday Night Live, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live sketches ever, and maybe my favorite that you wrote. Although you've written a lot of great ones, uh, which yeah. I just had to guess was yours based on the voice, which was tales of fraud and malfeasance and railroad hiring <laughs> practices. Yeah. I think it was on. Pretty much the tail end of the show, but <laughs> uh, since yeah, since you pointed that out to me, I reread it. That was a very silly piece. <laughs> I mean, I I remember that, and it's like what that was like nineteen ninety four. So that's fourteen years later, and I wow. was you know twelve or thirteen when it aired. So wow, you're a connoisseur. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come in. Uh, hi, I came about the job at the railroad. Sorry, I'm late. Well, that's okay. I just hope if we hire you, you won't be late for work. (laughs) Sit down. I've been uh, looking over your application, and uh, everything seems in order. I just have a few questions for you. Okay. Okay. Have you ever driven a train? Uh, No, sir. Do you think you could get in a train locomotive and just by moving the switches and levers at random, make the train move down the track? Yes, sir. I believe I could. Mm -hmm. At a high rate of speed? I'd certainly give it a try, sir. Mm-hmm. And then do you think that you could stop the train, again, just by moving the levers at random? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to strike things that are on the track, like cars? That is no problem, sir. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have any gumballs or hard candy? Well, I have a jawbreaker. Could I have it? Uh, sure. Do you ever have one of those days when you just wake up and you think, what am I doing on this planet? Uh, yes, sir, many times. Mm, and then you think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go down the railroad yard and kill my boss. <laughs> <laughs> sure do. Wait, uh, no? No? No. No's no, good. No. No's good. Are you familiar with ants? I've seen them in the movies. Would you be willing to let ants bite you? Yep. Yeah, I think I could do that. Mm-hmm. So how many ants would you let bite you? As many as it takes, sir. Well, all right, I think everything's pretty good here. <laughs> hey, what are you doing in here? Hey, hey, hey! This has been Tales of Fraud and Malfeasance in Railroad Hiring Practices. Brought to you by Granny's Tomato Sauce. Other tomato sauces are thin and watery and should go to hell. And by Screw You Pal Tires. If you can find a better set of tires, screw you, pal. That was the SNL sketch, Tales of Fraud and Malfeasance in Railroad Hiring Practices. It was written by my guest, Jack Handy, and it's the greatest thing of all time. Deep Thoughts uh, didn't start airing until uh, uh, the early 1990s, um, but I know that you had... Uh, pitched the idea for a while. And in fact, it had kind of deeper roots, maybe even than Saturday Night Live. Can, can you tell us where, where they came from? Um, I started writing them long, way back. I mean, they were sort of parodies of those uh, kind of books that came out in the 70s that were sort of diaries and they had, you know, sensitive diary kind of stuff. And it started out as kind of a parody of that. And then it kind of took on a character of its own. And I had them in National Lampoon and uh, a college magazine called Ampersand that I'm not sure, but I don't think it's around anymore. Um, and then actually Michael Nesmith, the monkey guy, uh, put them on his show. It was another brief sketch show in primetime. That's actually a good show called Television Parts. Uh, but I couldn't get them on Saturday Night Live, and, and I couldn't get them published. Uh, you know, no one wanted to publish them, and so I thought – well, the way to get things published is to get them famous and get them on TV. And so uh, I started pushing in to get them on Saturday Night Live. But, you know, they didn't want – they didn't really want a writer to have his name on things. You know, they uh, they didn't like that. So they fought me on it for a while and I sort of bided my time and wrote a lot of good sketches for them. And then finally they said, well, OK, we got to give them – give him this as dessert. Um, and of course the irony is that people think Jack Handy is a made up name. So <laughs> it, it didn't work at all. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I still go into like a hotel or something and people will go like, Oh, you have the name from that as the same name as that guy on Saturday night live. And I'll go like, Oh, that's me. And they go, it's sort of funny. The same name as that guy on Saturday night live. They, they just don't believe you <laughs> that you're the person. And now, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. To me, clowns aren't funny. In fact, they're kind of scary. I wondered where this started, and I think it goes back to the time I went to the circus and a clown killed my dad. It feels like Deep Thoughts are... Um in a way the the uh, apotheosis of this um 
of this character perspective that you often write from as as Jack Handy. Um, how would you? I mean, besides being interested in in cowboys and Martians, um, how would you describe that character? Um, it's a character who um, who thinks he's normal and wants the other people to empathize with him as normal, I think, but is actually sort of psychotic and, uh, you know, dangerous, but, uh, but has a logic that, you know, he thinks is, is quite normal. So he's, he's not, he's not, a uh, an insane person, but he's just sort of a, a psychotic person. <laughs> <laughs> How exactly do you draw the line between the two? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. uh, yeah, it, it can't be a, per- you know, he can't do things that like, you know, shooting people or something or, or, uh, but it, you know, if he says sort of mean things to kids and makes them cry, he thinks that's perfectly acceptable. You, you know? know, I, I heard you talking to, uh, my public radio international colleague, Faith Saley. Oh. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I heard you tell her something that really blew me away, which was that, uh, the deep thought, which is about, uh, telling a child, driving a child to Disneyland, but instead driving the child to a burnt-out warehouse and telling him that Disneyland burned down, right, was inspired by something that actually happened to you. Yeah, it was actually. My, I guess I was feeling mean, but uh, my sister was out with her son who was about six or something, and for some reason it just popped out. He was going, oh, "I want to go to Disneyland. I want to go to Disneyland." I was going, oh, didn't you hear Disneyland burned down? And he was like, he started crying. <laughs> and I, and I, I felt really bad. But uh, yeah, that was based on a real incident. What did your sister think of that? Oh, I'm sure she was mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> Is she just used to it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but he's now a grown man, and so uh, it's probably scarred him somehow. But... Uh And now, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. When you go for a job interview, I think a good thing to ask is if they ever press charges. I've heard that your writing process involves throwing a ball against a wall over and over indefinitely. Is that a fair characterization? That is a total lie. Uh, no, it's, it actually is true. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I got. Uh, well, actually, I write sketches that way too. But deep thoughts, uh, throwing a ball against, laying on my back and throwing it against the ceiling, sort of over and over again. And then, uh, in the case of deep thoughts, you write down, write them down, and then when you've got a huge stack of them, you go through and start weeding. But uh, yeah, that's how I do it. How, how many do you how many do you write for every one that you've published? If if I wrote, you know, if I wrote six or seven in a day, that would be a good day. And then of the ones that are published, probably nine out of ten I throw out. So um, that may be surprising when people see some of them. <laughs> they may go, "Wait a minute, the other ones are must be pretty horrible." <laughs> but uh, yeah, there, it, there's a big attrition rate on them. Were there any that you're, were your like particular faves? Uh. I guess I've always sort of liked the one about uh, – um, I like the one about the, uh, if you 
if you fall off the Sears Tower, go limp because uh, <laughs> maybe people will try to catch you because you look like a dummy. Because, hey, free dummy. Hey, free dummy. <laughs> I don't know. It has a it twists back on itself kind of twice there. But. <laughs> Man, I've spent a lot, way too much of my life thinking about the phrase, hey, free dummy. Hey, free dummy. <laughs> Copyrighted by Jack Hannon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jack Handy is a comedy writer and the man behind Deep Thoughts. His most recent book, which I cannot recommend more, is called What I'd Say to the Martians and Other Veiled Threats. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. Interpassional. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us at twitter.com slash bullseye. Hello there. My name's Graham Clark. And I'm Dave Shumka. And together we host a podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself. This is a file that you download from the internet and then you listen to it in your pod. What's that about, you ask? Well, who are you to ask? Who do you think you are? Yeah, get lost, bozo. (laughs) We're a couple of stand-up comedians in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and every week we bring a guest on the show. Sometimes they're Canadian, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're a ghost. It's like you're sitting in on a friendly uh, afternoon chat. Plus, we're Canadian, so it, you get a tax break. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org. Huh? Ooh, spell. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We like to consider ourselves a multicultural program. Heck, even a multilingual program when the situation demands it. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and play this segment from the Spanish-language television talk show Mundo de Perros, that was provided to us by the San Francisco-based sketch comedy group, Casper Hauser. Bienvenidos, señores y señoras, a nuestra programa, Mundo de Perros! World of Dogs. Hoy tenemos un visitante muy especial. Directo de la Universidad Harvard University, Dr. John Stinson. Hola, Dr. John. Uh, hello. Um, is this in Spanish? Sí. Oh, because I don't. I, well, yo hablo un poquito español, pero. Vaya, síntesis sí, gringo. Pregunta primera importante. ¿Qué? Es un perro. What is a dog? Sí. Well, uh, un perro uh, es un animal. <laughs> sí, yo lo sé, pues, pero realmente, ¿qué 
¿Qué es un perro? Uh, um, no sé. Uh, ¿No uh, sabes? Sí. No, uh, no. Es un animal con cuatro paws. Mm. How do you say long tongue? Do your best. Tonga lengua. No. I, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. they, say you, you, they say you were the biggest dog expert in the whole world. <laughs> sí. Sí. Yo, yo, yo soy. Yo. Sí. Okay. Otra pregunta seria, señor. He visto un tipo perro pequeño que se llama Guinea Pig. Y hace un ruido así. Sí, es un perro pequeño que dice que se llama Guinea Pig. Oh, oh ok. No, uh, Guinea Pig. No, es, uh, un Guinea Pig no es un perro. Sí, es un perro. Oh, no. Oh, no. sí. No, no, no. Oh, sí, es un perro pequeño. No, no, no. no es un, uh, un uh, uh, rudenta. This is my show. Oh. Ok, this is my show. But, it, oh, ok. Otra pregunta seria, señor. He visto una foto de un, de un perro que tiene cornamenta. ¿Cornamenta? Antlers. Oh, uh, no. Sí. Uh, no, no. Oh, sí, es cierto. No, He no, visto no. fotos. No, no, no es uh, un perro con uh, antlers. Sí hay. Pues, uh, no. Sí es el perro del, del Grinch. El Grinch que robó la Navidad. That's a cartoon. You are a cartoon. I This is my show. Okay, I listen. No, 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 you listen. This isn't oh, what this I is thought. This is my show. Okay, all right, I understand. I'm dog smart. You're book dog smart. Okay. Explícame entonces, un perro que tiene una botella de whisky aquí, porque necesita alcohol to have fun. Oh, oh okay. So, um, no, uh, uh, St. Bernard, uh, Santo Bernardo, ¿sí? Uh, es un, un perro de las montañas y... Um, y uh, el alcohol uh, no es por el perro, uh, es por los hombres en, en las montañas. Eh, que, que frío. Señor, alcohol no es una medicina. Este perro necesita rehab. Okay. Usted es el experto de un tipo perro que se llama pastor alemán. Pastor alemán. Shepherd German. Oh, uh, German Shepherd, sí. Este perro es su favorito, ¿no? Sí, sí, es un magnificent uh, animal. ¿No es el perro de Hitler? No, ¿Mm? no, no. ¿He visto no. fotos? ¿No es el perro de los nazis, no, no, señor? No, 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 no. El, uh -huh. el perro no es, sí, es el he perro visto de los nazis. fotos, señor. No, no, no. Es, no, es un animal, no tiene political... It's no, it's not fair. You, you love these dogs and you love Hitler. What? What? What is? What is this? I'm like, no, I'm a, I, I, I'm out of here. No, 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 señor, señor. This is a joke. This is a joke. Yeah, this is this is your life. These are all your friends. This is a joke. No. It's a real show, and you did a bad job. Okay, I listen. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us next week for a Mundo de Perro.
Mundo de Perros was performed by the comedy group Casper Hauser. You can find them online at casperhauser.com, their podcast on our website, MaximumFun.org, and in iTunes, and their books, including Weddings of the Times and Obama's Blackberry, in bookstores. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Jenna Fisher. She stars as Pam in the NBC sitcom The Office. The show's in its eighth season, and in this clip, Pam is pregnant with her second child. The thing about pregnancy is people treat you differently, like you're a kid almost. They lose all sense of boundaries. They start acting weird, telling you things that clearly aren't true. I know it sounds nuts, but I think Dwight is the only one who's telling me the truth. Dwight, am I hot right now? Why would I or anyone else think that you're hot right now? I can't impregnate you, and that's the driving force between male-female attraction. What about before? Was I attractive before? Meh. You're at your most attractive when you were 24 with a slight gradual decline and a steep drop-off when you got pregnant for the first time, gradual recovery, and, uh, well, now, obviously, you're at an all-time low. Hmm. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a it's a really great to have you. I'm so happy we could have you on the show. Um, so you're originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Did you? At what point did you decide that you aspired to become an actress? I wanted to be in Hollywood and in the movies and all the glamour from the time I was a little girl. I think I was always really fascinated with it. And my mom always brought home old movies like Elizabeth Taylor movies or Grace Kelly. Um, and so I was introduced to the idea of Hollywood from those old glamorous movie stars. And um, so I was always really fascinated with that. And then growing up, I did a lot of theater in high school. and But I went to college with, uh, and majored in history, pre-law history. And it wasn't until my junior year that I had been doing enough things with the theater department that it felt silly to continue to pursue my history major, which I never even got enough credits for a minor in history. And I ended up <laughs> graduating from college with a major in theater and a minor in journalism. So you, it was the, it was the sort of glamorous Hollywood side of it. I know oftentimes for an adolescent girl, and I'm allowed to say this because I went to theater high school, mm-hmm. um, there's this, uh, there's a very strong performance part of it and part of it about becoming someone else and, and that kind of thing that that an adolescent girl gets re- really into in uh, in getting into theater in their adolescent years. I think the real truth is that initially, as an adolescent, the thing that was exciting to me was the glamour and the prestige and the fame and the jewelry. I, always the jewelry. I found Elizabeth Taylor's <laughs> jewelry collection. I was like, what do I have to do to get a necklace like that? So, like, you either had to like marry a prince or become an actress. And um, really wanted. <laughs> there were those probably diamonds. relatively few princes yeah. <laughs> in St. Louis at the time. And there were, and also just in my age range, I just was born <laughs> at a time when there were not a lot of eligible princes. But then, you know, when I started studying acting, um, it was you know the thing that kept me going, the thing that kept me in that direction was really the love of acting. And, um, but that did come later, you know, because I, I'm not sure there are a lot of eight year olds who are like dying to act, you know? And then I, I moved to Hollywood from St. Louis after college, I graduated and I worked as a secretary for a year in St. Louis and I saved about $8,000 
And then I moved out with that nest egg. And I moved in with a friend of mine who I had gone to college with. He was already living here and uh, he needed a roommate. So I moved in with him into this dingy, disgusting apartment in West Hollywood that had like it, it was like felt like it was almost underground. It had leaded glass windows and a torn bed sheet as a curtain. And my cat was so depressed by the lack of sunlight that he started licking patches of his fur out <laughs> out God. of like because it was so miserable. And I lived there for like years. I lived in this, like he moved out. He got a girlfriend moved out. I put an ad in the paper and got a new room. Like I, for whatever reason, stayed in this horrible place. How did you feel about it? If the cat was licking its hair out? You know, I didn't mind it because I was so focused on being an actor and I was willing to forego any luxuries when it came to clothes or shoes or places to live. I just wanted everything to be geared toward, um, you know, if I had an extra $800, I was going to spend it on an acting class or new headshots. I wasn't going to put it into rent. So for me, it was just all part of the sacrifice of making it. And I just really, I did it really slowly. What was your first uh, professional gig in LA? It was a training video that they played at UCLA Medical Center and they played it for mental patients upon their release from the mental ward. When you were when you were performing it, when you got this gig, did you realize at the time that you were performing in a parody of an actor's first gig? No. I got paid $100. And it was a sex education video. It was to teach people about um, birth control, the various forms of birth control. People, specifically people being released from the mental hospital. That's right. That's what I was told. And so I played a young girl who was going on her first date. And I said to my sister, I can't wait to go out with Bill. And she says, well, do you have protection? And I say, protection? Protection from what? And she says, oh, come with me. And then she opens up a drawer in the bathroom that is filled with every birth control device ever. <laughs> and we go through each one and discuss the uses. And there were like chastity belts in there. Yeah, it was like the weird things you would never have, like an IUD, which is like something that's implanted by your doctor. We had one in her bathroom drawer. <laughs> and she explains it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jenna Fisher from NBC's The Office. Did you doubt your ability to succeed when you were when you were pushing so hard? I had a lot of doubts, especially I would say around my third year anniversary of being in Los Angeles, because every year that I was here was it was like every May because I moved out here in in May was really significant because it's sort of I would take stock of where am I compared to where was I last year, and around year three. When I just was, things were really dragging and I was really low. I had a, a boyfriend and he really wanted me to move back to his hometown and uh, get married. He was a chiropractor and um, he was a great guy. And I just couldn't leave. And I thought to myself that even if I never like made it or was a household name or any of those things, that I truly loved acting so much that it was enough for me to simply live in a city that didn't put a ceiling on what I could do creatively. But it wasn't like I did that thinking, yeah, I'm going to stay because I'm going to make it. It was really like, I'm going to stay if I make it or not. And it's okay if I don't. One of the things that strikes me as, as really scary about the actor's lifestyle is the extent to which 
you have to give up control of your career to other people that basically every bit of work, you know, every week of work that you have is because you had to pass through a gatekeeper who said, you know, yes, you can do something. Um, was it, was it scary or frustrating to have this career where there was besides the, uh, uh, ever popular Los Angeles one person show, um, there was so little that you could do without getting someone's sort of permission to do it. I would say that's one of the most frustrating parts about being an actor is that, um, if you're a painter or a writer or a musician, you can practice your art by yourself. And, um, I think you can get some fulfillment out of it, but it's really not that much fun to just act in your apartment by yourself. There, <laughs> there is like the, the need for an audience is so important. And also, um, I used to say I'm actually a professional auditioner because I did more auditioning than I did acting. And, um, so much of being an actor is getting work. I think you spend more time getting work than you do actually acting, especially in the beginning. Did you audition for things for which you were particularly ill-suited? Yes. I consider one of my more successful auditions was for a job that I was ill-suited and didn't get, which was, um, it was for a sitcom, and I can't remember which one at the time, but it said Pamela Anderson type. <laughs> and it was this really sexy waitress. And I was so embarrassed, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, and I talked to my acting teacher about it, and he was like, don't decide for other people what you're right for. Let them decide. So I thought, all right. So I put on a little jean skirt and went and did it. And I did not get the job. But about two years later, I got an audition for a movie where I had to play a prostitute. And I was like, oh, no, I can do this. I can do this. And I had a, a new confidence because I had done it once. And even though I failed, I had done it. And I went in and I did get that job. I got this little funny prostitute role in a Matt Dillon movie. I thought it was really interesting that you um, partly got into acting with the idea of uh, it being a wonderful way to be glamorous when your biggest break, you know, getting the role of Pam on The Office is basically defined by its unglamorousness. Like your your role on The Office is to be a beautiful and likable lady who is completely without glamour. <laughs> Right. Um, that is, I never put that together until just now, the <laughs> irony of that. And also, once I grew up and I realized the amount of hours it takes to look like those glamorous women and, and the maintenance involved, I became completely uninterested in it. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I, I couldn't be, I mean, I couldn't be less interested now in all of that. One of the um, funny things about acting is, is that in acting training, which can you know go on indefinitely, um, it, it's rare for there to be much comedy technique involved, unless you're doing something uh, specifically comedic. And, and many of our biggest comic stars come from a comedy training background rather than an acting training background. Somebody like Steve Carell from The Office, for mm -hmm. example, who who comes from a, an improv background. What skills did you have to learn uh, as a comic actress that you uh, might not have otherwise learned if you were just, you know, doing whatever? Well, I don't have any um, sketch comedy background. I was never in an improv group, and um, I think I would fail miserably as a sketch <laughs> performer on a show like Saturday Night Live. I, um, I actually, um, what I... 
when when I since I have a more traditional theater training, um, a lot of my theater training was about reacting. And um, a big phrase in my theater school was acting is reacting and acting is listening. And it's not about being showy or talking. And so I sort of applied that theory to comedy. And I found that it was really successful. And I think so much of Pam is reacting and um, making, you know, a big thing about theater acting is about being generous to the other actor and making them look good. Like whatever you can do to make somebody else look better, that's what you should be doing. It shouldn't be about yourself. And so applying that to comedy, especially since when I did come out to Los Angeles and take some improv classes, it oftentimes those improv classes are just a bunch of people like fighting for the spotlight. And um, I'm not, I'm also not naturally clever or like quick witted. And so I found that saying nothing or pausing or reacting to somebody else was the best way that I could get a laugh and also the best way to set them up for a witty comment, which they were going to have much more quickly than I would. More with Jenna Fisher after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. Interpassional. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. Every week on our show, Jordan Jesse Go, I would say that we share a little slice of our hearts. Yeah. And a little peek at our dicks. <laughs> but every week we have a podcast where we have fun and funny conversations with guests from the worlds of comedy, film, television. It's all online at MaximumFun.org or just search for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes. You can find our awesome new Bullseye logo on t-shirts in three colors at MaxFunStore.com. Order yours now. That's MaxFunStore.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jenna Fisher from NBC's The Office. Did you have a plan when you auditioned for The Office? Um, Had you seen The British Office? Did you have an idea of what choices you were going to make? I did. I had seen The British Office, and I was a huge fan. The audition for The Office was improv, and um, I knew they were calling in a lot of sketch performers and a lot of improv comedy people. And because I knew of their tendency to do a lot, I thought, I'm going to do very little. And the casting director actually said to me, Jenna, I want you to come in, and we've been seeing a lot of people, and everybody's doing so much. I want to dare you to be boring. Like, dare to bore us. Do as little as possible. That's really what we want. And she said, and please don't look pretty. Like, please don't glam up. Come in really just looking really normal. I would imagine that's an unusual instruction to get from a casting director. It definitely is because I've gone in for a lot of roles as like a third grade teacher and they're like, but sexy. Like, really? Sexy third grade? Okay. (laughs) Seems inappropriate to me. But so usually they want you to be sexier and, and they usually say things like, we can always imagine you uglier. So show us sexy. We can always pull back. But with, in this case, she really was like, don't wear much makeup. And um, we want, you know, someone who just looks really authentic. So I wore one of my actual outfits that I would wear as a temporary office temp. And um, it was that button-down shirt, which has now become a staple of Pam's wardrobe, and a cardigan. Because, you know, offices are chilly. 
And I went in and I didn't say much because my take on it was if this were a real person, a real girl in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and they brought in a bunch of documentary cameras, she wouldn't be very media savvy. She wouldn't be quick-witted because this would be an unusual situation that she wasn't used to. And yet at the same time, I imagine she was a rather polite person who wouldn't want to say bad things about her boss or her office. And yet I wanted you to be able to read all of it on her face as she considered her answer. So she would think about her answer, which would reveal everything, but then say that she really liked working there. And so that was my plan when I went in there. And I think that I, I felt like it really worked. I felt like I, that was the thing that made the difference. The uh, auditions for the show, as I understand it, involved um, something that they often do on a, uh, on a sitcom, especially one where relationships are really important, which is sort of rotating cast members or potential cast members, I should say, uh, making new combinations and, and seeing what works. Did you see unusual choices in working with with other actors that you that you didn't expect? Were there things that surprised you in, you know, working with the whatever it was, four or five people who, who might become Jim or the three or four people who might become uh, the boss or, or, or what have you? I think the thing that surprised me the most were the different Dwights. There were four different people who were in for Dwight and they were completely different, each one of them. Rain Wilson completely stood out because he was a master improviser and he's really smart. But there was, there was another guy that I thought was a really funny take and he looked sort of like a shorter version of Steve Carell. And it was very funny because when you saw them together, it was sort of like Michael Scott and mini me, Michael Scott. But I, I think, you know, BJ who plays Ryan ended up sort of being like this, what Steve perceived to be, oh, this is a better looking version of me. I wish I were this guy. And so they couldn't really, and uh, BJ had already been cast. And so they didn't, I think, you know, I don't know who knows why, but you can't have too many mini Steve Carell's <laughs> running around, right? <laughs> but, um, but I, but it's a know, general rule they use for yeah. sitcoms. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And when I was auditioning, they only matched me up with Rain Wilson one time. And, um, they matched me up with John Krasinski several times, and I thought, again, for sure, like, this guy is going to be Jim. He's the best. Of all the Jims I read with, he was just had this thing. And I really, really wanted him to get the role. And so I was feeling good every time they matched me up with John Krasinski because I'm like, yeah, I must be their Pam because they keep matching me up with John. But then they weren't matching me up with Rain, who I was <laughs> convinced was Dwight. And so then I didn't know what to think. But when they called me and said that I had been cast... The first question I asked was, did John Krasinski get the role of Jim? And they said yes. And I talked to John later, and he said the first thing he asked was, did Jenna Fisher get the role of Pam? So we were like sort of like career soulmates or whatever just from the beginning, just from the audition. We hit it off. You just got yourself kicked out of your apartment. <laughs> oh, I don't care. I don't really like that place that much anyway. I'll just move. Oh, really? Who's going to take you in? You're messy. You're a klutz. You spill everything. And you leave the volume on the TV way too loud. Yeah. Maybe I'll just move in with my boyfriend because he's kind of a slob, too. Okay, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> no, I, um... Well, I'm not gonna... I'm, I'm not gonna move in with anyone unless I'm engaged. Have I not proposed to you yet? Mm, I don't... No. Oh. No? Well... Mm -mm. That's coming. Oh, right now? No. I'm not going to do it right here. That would be rather lame. 
Okay, so then when? Pam, I'm not going to tell you. I hate to break it to you, but that's not how that works. Oh, right. Yeah. Wait, I'm serious. It's happening. Okay. And when it happens, it's going to kick your ass easily. So, stay sharp. I've been warned. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jenna Fisher, one of the stars of NBC's The Office. We spoke a few years ago, and Jenna reflected on the early days of the show. She says it took a lot of work to establish its now iconic faux documentary style. It was a lot of discussions with Greg Daniels, the creator, and Ken Quapis, the director of our pilot, who has come back to direct many episodes. And um, when we first started, he would make us, the entire cast, um, come to work every morning, and we had to be at our desks by 7 a.m., and we had 30 minutes of fake work time where <laughs> we there was nothing scripted and the documentary cameras would walk around the set and film us fake working. And in fact, a lot of the shots from the title sequence are from those fake work sessions, just of me passing papers or someone answering a phone. And they connected all our phones and during that 30 minutes, we could, we could call one another, but only about business. And we had to improvise. And the whole... And to be clear, you weren't running an actual business. We were not running an actual business. But Greg Daniels wanted originally to put the actual accountants who were like the accountants in charge of payroll for the television show on the set and have them work. <laughs> and we realized, though, that it would cause a real sound problem because their phones would have to ring. And it would eventually be distracting. But in the pilot of The Office, you can see those two women in the conference room because he thought they might be a part of the show. <laughs> he, like, pulled the actual women out of their offices on set, out of their trailer. But um, our fake accounting department, the Dunder Mifflin accounting department of Angela, Brian, and Oscar, their whole dynamic was created in these 30-minute fake work sessions. Angela would get irritated with Brian. and They just came up with this cute little thing that worked its way into the show and the whole thing about Angela and her cats, that was created. Angela, one day during the 30-minute work session, walked up to my desk with a Post-it note and said, I'd like to invite you to my cat's birthday party. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay. And then later, I was doing a scene with John when we were actually filming. And they said, you know what? Why don't you guys just improvise something funny? We just need to get some stuff of you guys flirting. And I saw the sticky note and I said, are you going to Angela's cat party? And it made it into an episode. And then from there, you know, seeds were planted. One of the things that, uh, that I imagine must be a structural challenge of this show is, is that, you know, on a traditional sitcom, you know, there are a few stages and whoever's in a scene is, is on the stage that happens to be shooting that day. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and everybody else is like, uh, hanging out in the, what, however big a trailer their agent got them or whatever. Right. Um, I, that's my understanding of what Hollywood is. That's pretty good. Okay. Thank you. Um, in the office, like 75% um, of the show is set in one space where everyone works and everyone may or may not end up being on camera. Yeah. Um, is, what do you do like in the time when you're on camera but not in the scene. Oh, my gosh. Well, I think it was like in the middle of year two, they got us real internet on our computers. <laughs> and we all were so... I think we were ready to revolt because we used to just sit there. I mean, we used to just sit there and like 
for hours and hours at this <laughs> fake desk with nothing to do. And um, I used to, like, I read a couple of books. Um, but now we have internet, and so we do things like shop online. I think um, the guy who plays Stanley, I think he, like, furnished his whole apartment <laughs> by, like, shopping online. He was always, like, showing me a new credenza or something. <laughs> Um, and it's good because if he sees a, a piece of furniture he disapproves, he can make that good Stanley face. That's right. Exactly. So it all works. <laughs> but no, so we do a lot of emailing and um, MySpacing. That was, we were really into MySpace early on. We would MySpace a lot from our computers. And uh, yeah, so now that's what we do. Is it weird to work in that context? It, like, I just imagine that, you know, in, when you're in Blades of Glory and Will Ferrell does something really ridiculous. You'd have this like burning temptation to kind of like make a mild look of disapproval to the camera. <laughs> that has actually happened when I was in Blades of Glory. It was my first day of shooting and I had to do a scene with uh, Will Arnett and Amy Poehler. And it was a scene where they say group hug and then they mean each other and they exclude me. <laughs> and um, I looked at the camera twice in two different takes. I did a look to camera like Pam would. And I had to, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Forget, right, right, right. This camera's not here. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go again, go again. And then I did it again. So you do, it is like, it is a completely different acting exercise to regard the camera or disregard the camera. And I, I have to say, like, I love working on The Office. I like it that there's like 12 of us all in the same space. And some of my favorite memories are the conference room scenes. I mean, there's the cast members plus all these cameramen and all the boom operators. We're all just in this tiny room all together, stinking up the place for like five hours doing those long conference room scenes. And we have some of the most fun. I mean, whenever we do our read throughs and we see conference room scene, we all sort of moan. We're like, oh, conference room scene. Do you remember something, a a particular conference room scene? Well, I remember one that made me laugh really hard this year was during the weight loss episode. It was the premiere episode and that we had this huge like spread of food, all like the most disgusting food. And just if you put like a cheese fountain in a room with like <laughs> Ed Helms and John Krasinski and Brian Baumgartner and Rain Wilson, like they're going to start doing disgusting things with the cheese. <laughs> it's like too tempting for them. So they really entertained us with all the various things that they covered in cheese <laughs> in between takes, food and non-food items. Well, uh, Jenna, it was, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. Jenna Fisher is one of the stars of uh, the NBC television program, uh, The Office, which you can catch on NBC Thursday nights. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So if you think about Bo Jackson now, you probably think about those commercials. Bo knows baseball. Which admittedly were great in their time. And if you're one of those people who thinks about being Bo Jackson in Tecmo Bowl on the Nintendo, well, I can understand that, too, because Bo Jackson and Marcus Allen were basically an unstoppable force if you played the Raiders in that game. But if you want to remember what was really great, about Bo Jackson at the peak of his Bo Jacksonness in like 1987, 1988, 1989, go to YouTube and click on the search box and type in Bo Jackson. And then click on something. Something with him playing a sport. And then just try to close your gaping jaw 
for the next half an hour. Because no one that fast should be that strong. And no one that strong should be that fast. Look how hard he hits people. He's just so quick. Look at that burst. And no one should be able to throw that hard. And just, just holy cow. What a catch, Bo Jackson! The stuff that was outside of athletics was amazing. The comeback after he busted his hip was remarkable. All of that is true. But what's really amazing is that a man that big can run like that and hit like that and throw like that. That God made a person like that. And we have video to prove it. (laughs) Andy Campbell gives to Bo Jackson. Jackson's on his way. So go to YouTube. Type in Bo Jackson. Click on something. That's my outshot this week. In your face. 71 yards for Bo Jackson. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Colin Walzak. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-up. I'm Jesse Thorne. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.